Our second lesson for this uh, Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are continuing our study there and this morning are at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 12. And again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David speaks the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he's the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. In our last installment on Paul's letter to the Romans, we came to that wonderful announcement in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all who believe. Now, one would have to think that after a thorough prosecution of God's case against humanity from chapter 1, verse 18, until chapter 3, verse 20, that verse 21 came as a welcomed relief as it declared the glorious good news of Jesus Christ to the church that was at Rome. For the affirmation that Paul makes here is that we do not need a personal righteousness that comes through the law 
in order to be justified before God, but rather God justifies all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. We need to realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is antithetical to most. And that's because our sinful nature deludes us into thinking that we have something of spiritual worth to offer under God that would be acceptable to God as payment for our sin. The idea that we have nothing to offer and must rely upon a gift from God causes our pride to work overtime in protest, insisting to God and to ourselves that we are worthy. But for the person who has come to see the depth of their depravity as well as the magnitude of their helplessness in the face of God's justice and holiness, Paul's announcement is news of a far greater magnitude. It is a word beyond all other words. And yet Paul understands that there will still be some who want to challenge it because it is in our nature to do so. So to counter such temptations, Paul reinforces what he has already said concerning justification by the law. Beginning in verse 1 here, he asks the question, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Now Paul is appealing to what even his greatest opponents would recognize as an unimpeachable source, Father Abraham. And his question is, what did Abraham come to know about being set right or being justified before God? What was his experience? And hopefully, you are familiar with the story of Abram, who was living in Ur of the Chaldees, minding his own business. Abram already had an AARP card and was automatically being given the senior discount on a host of things by the time God spoke to him. Because Abram was 75 years old, Sarai, his wife, was 65, and they had no children. And this was a heartache to them. But then God extended an invitation to Abram in which God promised that he would give him children and a land and that Abram's name would become great, for through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so Abram set off to follow where God would lead. And after a number of years, the Lord came to Abram in a vision in which he said to him, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. And Abram took the opportunity to seek clarification about the promise that God gave concerning children. Because as it currently stood, a man born within Abram's household was his legal heir, since he still had no child of his own. And in answer, God said to Abram, Eliezer is not going to be your heir. You're going to have a son of your very own. Abram, I want you to step outside. And it was a clear and starry night, and God directed Abram's attention to the multitude of stars and galaxies, and he said, go ahead, count them if you can. Those are the number of your children. And then the scripture says, 
and he believed. In other words, Abraham believed the Lord, and he, meaning the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Now, it is to this moment that the Apostle Paul appeals as he is making the case that our justification is not by any works of the law. Abram was not justified before God. He was not declared innocent before God because he did something to which he could point and boast. Abram made the wonderful discovery that God, who graciously called his name and summoned him to follow, was a kind and loving God who grants unmerited favor to those whom God chooses, who put their trust in him. And Paul's point is that Abraham was not receiving God's favor because he had worked for it. For in that case, it would not be grace. It would be something that Abraham had earned in the same way that a worker toils for a day and at the end of the day receives his wages. Paul has already made the point at the end of chapter 3 that we are justified by God's grace as a gift and that it is to be received by faith. And so Abraham was not justified because of any works that he accomplished. Abraham was justified by God through his faith. Now notice also what Paul declares in verse 5 here. He says, our faith is in him who justifies the ungodly. In other words, God declares innocent those who are guilty. God justifies the wicked. God justifies those who are not even trying to be good. God sets right with himself those who are impious and proud of it. Now Paul can declare this because of what the Scriptures teach, but also because he knows that experientially. This is Paul's story. He was actively rebelling against the will of God as he persecuted the church, and in a flash God called his name, brought him to his senses and declared him to be innocent. Not because Paul was innocent, because he wasn't. He was ungodly. He was wicked. He was in in full rebellion. But this is how it is for every person whom God redeems and regenerates to new life. There is no one who will stand in the judgment and declare that they found God. The testimony will be, I was lost, but then I was found. And all the praise and honor and glory goes to God. Even among those who cannot remember a time when they did not know Christ, they will recognize that Christ was the one who first came to them, albeit very early in their lives, and that he graciously made himself known to them, sparing them perhaps from many of the sinful pursuits that others must work hard to forget. But what we need to understand here is that when God justifies us, it is a legal pronouncement. It is a forensic declaration that the eternal judge makes. On the surface, it appears to us to be unjust, that the guilty would be declared not guilty. But what we do not always immediately realize is that the judge is accepting a payment for our sin that was made on our behalf by another. 
Now, Paul did not immediately comprehend what God had done by grace on his behalf, but he soon came to understand that God had claimed him as his own, had taken his sin and laid it upon Christ Jesus, who bore those sins on Calvary's tree, and God gave the righteousness of Christ to Paul, thus settling his debt. And this is what the Scriptures mean when they say that it was counted to him as righteousness. It is a term that means numbered, or credited to, or imputed. So if someone were to make a deposit to your checking account without you knowing about it, you would make the pleasant discovery at some point that you have more resources than you previously thought. And in this spiritual transaction, our sins are put to Christ's account and His righteousness is put to our account. It isn't that God makes us righteous, but God cancels the debt that we owe, and it is canceled forever. Now, Abram did not immediately understand how God was working these things out. But by the time God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac on Mount Moriah, God had revealed something of the plan to Abraham such that he could answer Isaac's question to him, Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And he replied by saying, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now you may remember that moment in Jesus' ministry when he makes the remark, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And while we cannot become too dogmatic about it, it is safe to say that God revealed enough of the plan of salvation to Abraham that he could rejoice in the knowledge that he was standing at the fountainhead of an unfolding plan for the salvation of mankind such that he would be able to see the truth of God's promise to make him the father of many nations, not genetically speaking, but spiritually speaking. Now, Abraham was not the only Old Testament figure to understand this spiritual accounting system that God employs to restore fellowship with those upon whom his grace falls. Paul goes on to quote King David, who declared in Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Again, David understood that God justifies the ungodly. David was guilty of adultery and conspiracy to commit murder. He was a man whose hands were covered in blood and his treachery precluded him from building a permanent temple for the worship of God. And yet he was also a man who understood how God's grace was at work in his own life. His Psalm 51 recognizes that he was born in iniquity. He recognizes that God alone can blot out his transgressions and make him clean again. He recognizes that sacrifices and burnt offerings are not what God desires, but rather it is broken spirits 
and contrite hearts. He knew that God alone could deliver him from his blood guiltiness. So indeed, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David understood God's grace. He knew that God does not first make us righteous and then declare us forgiven. The God of the Bible justifies the ungodly. Now, how much of God's plan for the salvation of mankind David knew, we do not know. But we do know that David knew all about the Messiah. For God promised him that future king would be a descendant of David's and that the Messiah's greatness would eclipse David's greatness. Jesus asks the religious authorities to ponder something one day, and he asks them a question. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And they immediately answer, the son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they refused to answer. And you see, they refused to consider anyone greater than David. They refused to think of David bowing to anyone. And yet they could not deny that David was the psalmist. They could not deny that David had made that statement. What they could not do was wrap their minds around the notion that there was one who was greater than David to whom they also should be willing to bow the knee. And it is this one who is greater than David whose own righteousness is imputed to all those who have faith in him. And this plan for salvation is not for the Jews only, which is what Paul means when he refers to the circumcised, but it is also extended to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised. And as Paul ponders the activity of God in the life of Abraham, he is given to see that the moment in which God justifies their patriarch is when Abraham puts his full faith in God. This is long before Abraham is instructed to circumcise his son as well as every male within his household. And so Abraham is not set right with God as a result of his obedience to that command. That's not what was counted as righteousness. It was his faith in God that was counted as righteousness. The sign of the covenant has nothing to do with the justification of the ungodly which means that whether you are Jew or Gentile, this salvation through faith in Jesus Christ is freely offered to all who will believe. And this is how God's promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, and I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, is being realized even today. The most disparate People groups are coming to faith in Christ through the proclamation of the gospel and for everyone who believes, 
they can look at Abraham as the one who is first described as having been justified by faith. And they can claim Abraham as their spiritual forefather. And that great multitude that no one can number in Revelation 7-9, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, can all look at Abraham and see the fulfillment of God's promise to make of him the father of many nations. Well, Paul began this section by asking the question, what shall we say then? that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. Abraham's discovery is the same discovery that people every day are making as the Holy Spirit of God opens their blind eyes and helps them to see that eternal salvation is not something that we work for. It is not something that we must earn. It is not something that we inherit by our nationality or that requires our tireless efforts to achieve. It is something that is free to all who will put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone. And this is what Paul says has been manifested or made known to the world. As we said last time, this is God's most elegant plan for the salvation of humanity, that our sins are given to Christ and His righteousness is given to us by faith alone. Have you come to discover the truth of this gospel? If you have not yet surrendered to God's plan for your salvation, then I invite you to do so even now as we pause for a moment of prayer. Would you pray with me?